Great, thanks, Mike, and uh, uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, so I'd like to talk about some new developments in the search uh, for a cure for HIV infection. Um, I have no uh, uh, financial uh, disclosures, and here's the uh, learning objectives. Um, so as you all know, uh, treatment uh, reduces viremia to below the limit of uh, detection, uh, but when patients interrupt treatment, there's a rapid uh, rebound in viremia. So when we talk about HIV cure, what we're really talking about is how do we prevent a viral rebound when patients uh, stop treatment. And so what I'd like to do is kind of focus on what causes a rebound and what do we know about it uh, from the point of view of, of viral dynamics. And this is the quantitative analysis of viral replication in vivo, a very important field that actually Mike Sag had a lot to do uh, with starting. And so what I've done is uh, take a lot of studies from the literature and try to put them in a common format so we can just get a picture of the course of uh, the infection in a typical uh, infected uh, individual. So um, shortly after uh, exposure to the virus, there's rapid increase uh, in uh, the amount of virus in the blood. And this increase uh, is what we call exponential. In other words, instead of going up in a linear sort of one, two, three fashion, it goes up uh, exponentially, 10, 100, 1,000. Uh, extremely uh, rapid uh, growth of the virus. And you can describe this with something called the reproductive ratio. Uh, which uh, for acute HIV infection is between 8 and 10. And what this is is the number of uh, infected cells that you get from a single infected cell. In other words, a single cell will produce virus that will infect 8 more cells, and each of those cells will produce virus that infects 8 more cells. So you can see that this initial growth is really explosive. This is, this is what going viral uh, really means. Uh, and so you have this enormous uh, increase in viremia, very rapid, up to a million copies per mil or higher. And then as the immune response develops, uh, viremia falls down, as you know, to a stable set point, often between 10 and 100,000 uh, uh, copies uh, per mil. Uh, when a treatment is started, there's an exponential decrease in the level of viremia. It falls very rapidly. And you can see it's a biphasic decrease. Uh, and the way to understand this is with a very simple model that actually Mike uh, had a lot to do with developing. And, and the idea is that um, a virus interacts with uninfected cells and produces infected cells. All of the drugs that we use to treat HIV infection act by blocking new infection of susceptible cells. Uh, but they don't block production of virus by a cell that's already infected. So this is a very important uh, thing to understand. And if you think about this, you realize that if the block is complete, then what really determines that fall in viremia is the, the half-life of the cells that are already infected at the time treatment is started, this decay rate of the productively infected cells. And because of the biphasic nature of that curve, you can see that there's actually two populations of infected cells that produce most of the plasma virus. One population turns over very quickly with a half-life of one day, and then there's a second population that turns over about every two weeks. If that was all we had to worry about, then the infection uh, would likely be curable. Uh, but uh, what actually happens is that uh, viremia falls to a new uh, steady state, a level that's uh, below the limit of detection of the clinical assay, but it's typically about one virus particle per mil of plasma. And everybody has this, uh, everybody who's got a, quote, undetectable viral load. And we call this residual viremia. This is not due to the failure of drugs to block replication, because actually, if you intensify treatment, add a fourth drug, you cannot reduce the residual viremia any further. 
Uh, rather, this viremia is coming from cells that were infected before treatment was started, but they have a much uh, longer uh, half-life. And uh, we now think that these cells are latently infected uh, CD4-positive T cells that arise really as a course of the normal way the immune system works. Uh, so most of the T cells in the body are in a resting state, these small round cells, and when they encounter a pathogen, they become activated and proliferate. Uh, and, uh, and take care of the, the whatever infection is going on. And at the conclusion of the immune response, most of those cells die, but some of them survive and go back to a resting state as what we call memory cells, long-lived cells that will persist and allow you to respond to the same uh, antigen again in the future. Now, in HIV infection, what happens is uh, that the virus usually replicates in, in the activated T cells, the, the red T cells uh, in this diagram, and those are the cells that die very quickly. But occasionally, the virus will infect one of these activated cells as it's transitioning back to become a memory cell, a long-lived memory cell. And this gives you a stably integrated form of the virus in a resting T cell. In the resting T cell, the virus is not actively transcribed, so it's essentially a silent or latent infection. And these are memory cells whose function it is to provide lifelong immunity. So these cells live a long time. So this is almost a perfect recipe for viral persistence. And then, of course, if that cell becomes activated again in the future, it can begin to produce a virus. So this is a nice hypothesis. How do we know these cells are actually present in patients? So I'd like you to show you the, the assay that was used to demonstrate the presence of these cells, because measuring these cells has actually become very clinically important in terms of how we're going to monitor uh, interventions uh, to cure the infection. So what you do is you take resting T cells, and they're not producing any virus, and you them in different amounts and then activate them, uh, and then any cell that has a latent virus will begin to produce uh, virus particles, which you can then expand by adding CD4 cells to the culture. And basically, you can grow out from a single latently infected cell enough virus to detect um, in about two weeks, and then you can go back and calculate uh, how many cells were infected. Turns out to be very small amount, about one in a million. Uh, so this is a very small population of cells. The problem is that these cells don't go away. So this is now measurements of the, this population of cells in people who had an undetectable viral load on treatment uh, doing very well. And you can see the time scale here is years. And this population simply uh, does not uh, decay. It's extremely uh, stable. Now, um, we published these measurements back in uh, 1999 and, and 2003. Uh, recently, David Margolis has repeated uh, this study, uh, and, and many of the uh, uh, patients in his study were on uh, much uh, newer uh, regimens, uh, but you can see that the results are the same. In fact, we calculate essentially the same half-life. And so this says that all of the remarkable improvements in antiretroviral therapy, uh, while they've improved uh, tolerability and, and so forth, they haven't actually addressed this fundamental problem of a non-replicating form of the virus that's actually not affected uh, by these uh, drugs. And this form, this latent form, is extremely stable. Now, there's a big debate in the field now about what accounts for the stability of this reservoir. Uh, a recent paper suggested that uh, the virus is continuing to replicate and sort of reseed this latent reservoir. And this is based on a study in three patients in which uh, evolution of the virus was observed. Uh, most studies of evolution have not seen this. And I think the problem with this paper is that they looked uh, too early. If you look early after patients start treatment, then the number of latently infected cells that you uh, detect with the assay I mentioned is much higher, and uh, that's because there are labile populations of infected cells which decay, 
you don't get down to that one in a million number uh, until about six or eight months, and that study was, was done earlier. So I don't think those results are, are correct, and in fact, uh, we can show that this early sampling uh, gave the sort of mistaken appearance of evolution, which was really simply the disappearance of this labile population of infected cells. So we think that the drugs actually uh, completely arrest viral replication, and you know this because in patients who are compliant, uh, uh, there is no evolution of drug resistance. So how is it that dr drugs actually work uh, so well? So this is the dose response curve for a hypothetical antiretroviral drug with the amount of infection decreasing as a concentration of drugs increases. And we can describe this with a simple equation. I know it's a little early in the morning for equations, but I just want to point out that uh, this equation includes uh, this exponent m, which is, describes the steepness of the dose response curve. In other words, uh, how steep the curve is doesn't look like it really makes much difference, particularly since we would use these drugs at concentrations way above the IC50 in sort of that pink shaded range, range where it looks like the curves come together. The problem is that the way pharmacologists always plot these curves is actually incorrect because uh, viruses replicate exponentially, as I said. So you really should be looking at inhibition of replication on a logarithmic 10, 100, 1000 sort of scale. Uh, and if you do that, the same curves actually look very different. Uh, and what they look like is this. Uh, if the dose response curve is, uh, has, a, has a slope value greater than one, then uh, the curves are steeper and the amount of infection falls very, very rapidly uh, after you get above the IC50. For example, the green and, and, and orange curves in this diagram. It turns out that those are the curves that actually uh, represent what happens with protease inhibitors and non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors. As soon as you get above the IC50, uh, the amount of infection uh, that can occur just falls very, very dramatically by many orders of magnitude. Um, and the reason I mention this is that um, this has really become relevant again with uh, treatment of hepatitis C infection. As you know, uh, hepatitis C produces a continuous high-level viremia with rapid viral evolution and, and evolution of drug resistance with suboptimal treatment. Uh, and yet, uh, now with uh, two drug regimens, we're achieving cure rates of, of approaching 100%. Uh, interestingly, if you do the same analysis on hepatitis uh, C drugs, you'll see the same kind of phenomena with this very, these very steep dose response curves, where as soon as you get above the IC50, uh, the amount of infection uh, falls very, very dramatically. Um, so we think that these sort of cooperative dose response curves, as we call them, can produce extraordinarily high levels of inhibition of viral replication and allow cure of hepatitis C. Uh, and of course, the big difference here is that hepatitis C does not have a latent uh, form, and that's the problem uh, with HIV. So we think that treatment really is, is, is completely suppressive, uh, but it's not curative due to the latent reservoir. As you've heard, there has been a single patient cured. Uh, Timothy Brown was a patient who uh, developed uh, leukemia while on HIV treatment, uh, had a bone marrow transplant from a donor who was very cleverly selected to have uh, mutation in CCR5. So essentially, the transplant was done with HIV-resistant cells, and uh, um, then uh, treatment was stopped and uh, no, no virus has come back. He's considered uh, the, uh, the first and only patient uh, cured. And really what happened here was that the uh, conditioning regimen and the graft-versus-host disease that developed following uh, the transplant eliminated his entire immune system, including latently infected cells. And if a few were left, then uh, any virus they produced could not replicate in his new immune system, which consisted of HIV-resistant uh, cells. 
Um, I think more interesting are a couple of other near-cure cases, um, including uh, two patients who um, also had uh, malignancies for which an allogeneic bone marrow transplant was done. But in this case, the donor uh, was wild-type for CCR5. In other words, uh, HIV-susceptible cells were used. Um, and treatment was continued throughout the transplant period to prevent the donor cells from becoming infected. And then when there was near-complete replacement of uh, the patient's immune system with the donor cells, treatment was stopped. The rebound that normally happens at two weeks after uh, interruption of treatment did not occur, and people got excited. Uh, but then in both cases, uh, after several months, in one case eight months, there was a sudden and dramatic rebound in viremia, presumably due to a few latently infected cells that were persisting, and then one of them became uh, activated. And similarly, my Hopkins colleague, Debbie Prasad, has described the case of this uh, uh, Mississippi baby. This is a, an infant born to an infected mother who had no prenatal care. Uh, the baby had a viral load of 20,000 on day one. It was started on combination therapy. Uh, viral load became undetectable. Treatment was uh, stopped against medical advice around 18 months. Uh, but viremia, there was uh, no uh, uh, rebound in viremia. And uh, until about two years after treatment uh, interruption, again, there was this sudden and dramatic rebound in viremia. And interestingly, what's, what's common in these three cases is that there was little of an immune response to the virus, either due to the transplant process or early, uh, the early initiation of treatment. There was really no HIV immunity. So without an immune response and without drugs, there's nothing to prevent the uh, explosive growth of the virus. So the, the only way to explain these cases is to say that there was a latent, non-replicating form of the virus that persisted for months to years and then uh, uh, reactivated. Uh, so these, uh, these cases provide sort of a dramatic illustration of what we're up against in trying to cure uh, HIV infection. So back to this issue of uh, viral rebound. A rebound occurs normally uh, if there's no intervention uh, about two weeks uh, after treatment. And let's just look at a rebound a little bit more carefully using uh, uh, published uh, studies of treatment interruption. One of the early studies uh, done by the Fauci group showed that rebound typically occurs at about two weeks uh, after a treatment interruption, even in patients who had been given IL-2 and had very low levels of lately infected cells. A more recent study by Tim Shacker has carefully monitored patients after treatment interruption and again uh, shown that uh, viremia becomes detectable about two weeks uh, after interruption and the rebound is exponential. You can see it goes up very, very uh, uh, steeply and I think this is important. We don't see a sort of a gradual increase in viremia after uh, treatment interruption. Rather, um, there's this steep exponential increase. In other words, the, the horse gets out of the barn very, very quickly. The virus reaches levels of replication where it can quickly evolve and evade the immune response. And this is one of the big problems that we're, that we're facing. Um, the very, there's not really much variation in the time to rebound, uh, and the variation is less than the variation in the size of the reservoir in, this, in different patients. And what this means is that many latently infected cells are reactivating every day uh, and that you're not really going to get a long delay in rebound until you reduce this viral reservoir to the point where there's less than one latently infected cell activating per day and then you have to wait for that cell uh, to appear. Uh, you, I think it's useful to divide uh, the, the period during which rebound occurs in, into three phases. First. Uh, there's the time that's required for the drugs to wash out of the system. Nothing will happen until the drugs wash out of the system. And then the time required for the first latently infected cells to appear. And then the time required for the virus to grow up to a detectable level. 
Um, and so with that background, I'd like to review some, some recent studies in which there has been an intervention done and then treatment stopped uh, and uh, we see whether there's a delay in rebound or not. And some of these are clinical trials and some of these are studies in the SIV macaque uh, model of HIV infection. So the first set of studies involve uh, broadly neutralizing antibodies. So this is a picture of the envelope protein of HIV on the surface of the virus particle. Uh, this is what attaches the virus to CD4 on CD4 positive T cells. And this is the target for vaccines because antibodies to this protein can prevent uh, infection. And uh, most of these antibodies uh, are, are a, a problem in terms of um, how well they work in different patients because the envelope protein is highly variable. But uh, there, there have been uh, recent studies that have uh, isolated broadly neutralizing antibodies that, that neutralize most isolates of HIV. Uh, they actually arise in many patients, but slowly after a couple of years. And by the time they've arisen in a given patient, the virus in that patient has already escaped uh, from neutralization by these antibodies. They have very unusual structures, which makes them difficult to induce in, in, in a sort of vaccine setting. Uh, but once you've identified one of these antibodies, you can manufacture it and infuse it passively. And there's a lot of interest in this now in using these as antiviral agents and in HIV cure research. And uh, the big difference between these antibodies and antiretroviral drugs is that they uh, while they block new infection just the way, let's say, an entry inhibitor would, they can also target infected cells because this structure is expressed on the surface of an infected cell uh, as it's producing virus particles. And, and when the antibody binds, it can then target that cell for destruction by the immune response. So there's a lot of interest in terms of using these antibodies to target this uh, reservoir. So here's the first uh, uh, study. This was a clinical trial in which one of these broadly neutralizing antibodies was infused into patients and then treatment was interrupted. And as you can see, rebound occurred in all of the patients. There was a delay in rebound in some patients, uh, but this is likely due to the fact that these antibodies have a much longer half-life in the body than antiretroviral drugs do. They can persist for weeks uh, uh, to a month. And, and so the delay probably just reflects the longer time it re required for these uh, antibodies to wash out of, of the system. Now, another approach uh, to cure um, is, is called shock and kill, and the idea here is to turn on the latently infected cells and then hope that the immune response can identify them and, and kill them. Uh, so a latency reversing agent is given to uh, turn on uh, the latent virus, and then uh, we hope that the immune response will recognize these cells. And to, to facilitate that in this uh, study uh, by Dan Baruch's group at, at, at Harvard, uh, the animals involved in the study were immunized to enhance their CD8-positive T-cell response, their cytotoxic T-cell response, so that they could kill the infected cells once uh, latency was uh, reversed. Uh, and so what happened, this is sort of the, uh, uh, the average response in the control animals, uh, and in the animals that received this latency-reversing agent and a vaccine, what happened was both a slight delay in rebound, which suggests that there was some reduction in the viral reservoir, as well as a lower set point in uh, the animals once the virus had rebounded. And this sort of nicely illustrates the two big approaches to cure. One is to target the reservoir and, and delay rebound, hopefully uh, indefinitely. And the other is simply to enhance the immune response so that if the virus does come back, uh, it's controlled uh, to a low level, hopefully to an undetectable uh, level. And there's a big debate now as to which approach is more likely to be successful. Um, there's been a lot of e recent interest in a study published by Tony Fauci's group in which an antibody to alpha-4 beta-7, this is a structure on 
uh, T cells that's involved in targeting T cells to different locations in the body, particularly the, uh, the GI tract. Uh, that, an that antibody was administered to animals uh, on treatment and then treatment was stopped. Um, here's what happened in the control animals. Um, and in the animals that got this antibody, actually, they all had viral rebound, but then they controlled viremia. Uh, and so the mechanism here is not clear, and this study is now uh, uh, being uh, repeated. But we have to consider that uh, given that the, the, the reservoir per, uh, presents really a lifelong challenge, we have to look at this on a long time scale. So if we look at uh, this viral rebound data on a, on a longer time scale, the only interventions that have really produced a long delay in rebound are uh, the two transplant cases I mentioned and the very early treatment in the case uh, of the Mississippi baby. And so it's really not clear uh, whether um, a delay in rebound by reducing the reservoir or some kind of immune in intervention to uh, allow a lower set point is going to be most successful. I think that uh, any intervention that lowers the set point but, but leaves a, a level of viremia that's still in a detectable range is not going to be clinically attainable because there will be viral uh, evolution. We really would need something that would lead to very rapid and almost complete control of, of viral replication. Now, this post-treatment uh, uh, control has been observed in, in, in sort of a scattered uh, uh, clinical studies in rare patients, uh, typically patients treated very early after uh, infection. In patients who start treatment during chronic infection, I think it's going to be much more difficult because the immune system has developed a certain degree of exhaustion, there's a high level of viral diversity, and uh, there's escape of uh, the virus from immune responses. Uh, so, for example, uh, the cytotoxic T cell response uh, selects for escape variants, and in this graph, the bars indicate the percent of viruses in this reservoir that have escape mutations. Uh, and for three different regions in the virus, if you look in patients treated early, there's no escape mutations, but in patients treatment, treated after six months, there's 100% of the viruses in the reservoir have escape uh, mutations. And so I think this is a, one of the big problems in terms of eliminating these latently infected cells after uh, treatment interruption. So whether immune control or reservoir reduction is going to be uh, most successful, we, uh, uh, we really don't know. There's a big uh, debate uh, in the field. But I do want to point out that um, one of the things that one, I think one of the misconceptions people have is that we have to, if we're going to uh, do this by achieve cure by reducing the reservoir, people say you have to get rid of every last latently infected cell. That's actually not, uh, not the case. Um, and some modeling studies done by Daniel Rosenblum illustrate this. So in this graph, um, what's shown is the uh, amount of reduction in the viral reservoir uh, by on a log scale, uh, uh, one, two, three uh, logs, 10, 100, 1,000 fold, in other words, uh, and how much of a delay in rebound those reductions uh, would cause. So if you don't do anything, most patients rebound in two weeks. Uh, if you reduce the reservoir by, um, you'll have to reduce the reservoir by about three logs, in other words, 1,000 fold to get, on average, a one-year delay in viral rebound. And there's a tremendous amount of variation around uh, that number due to the fact that the reservoir is different size in different individuals and just the sort of random nature of the reactivation of latently infected cells. Um, uh, and this tremendous variation makes it difficult to make predictions. This model fits pretty well with the known cases of delayed rebound. But I think what's interesting is that there are a fair number of patients uh, in whom 
um, that rebound will not occur uh, during their remaining lifespan. If you reduce the reservoir by something like three, well, three logs or a thousandfold, some patients uh, will not experience rebound uh, during their remaining uh, lifespan, even though some latently infected cells uh, persist. The problem is we won't be able to predict which patients those are, and all of these patients would require uh, long-term uh, monitoring. But uh, the situation is not actually that difficult because um, we can uh, alter our predictions uh, based on how long patients have gone without rebound after treatment interruption. And as you can see in this curve, the probability of a cure actually increases, as you would expect, uh, if patients have been off of a treatment for an increasing amount of time without a viral rebound. So in the time that remains, I want to just cover two additional topics. One is how do we measure this reservoir, and, and the second is uh, why is it uh, so stable. Um, so I just want to point out that the assay for plasma virus really sped the development of antiretroviral drugs because uh, you didn't have to wait for any clinical endpoints. You could just look at this rapid drop in viremia and see whether the drug was working or not. And this was a tremendous advance uh, to the field. We need a similar assay for the latent reservoir. There is no clinical assay for this reservoir. You can't order a test that will tell you the size of this reservoir. This assay that I described at the beginning um, is done in research laboratories. It takes about two weeks of tissue culture work in a BSL-3 lab, and, and really nobody wants to do this. Uh, you might wonder, well, why can't you just use PCR and detect the viral genome in these uh, cells? And that's what actually most people are doing now. The problem is that if you compare the results of PCR assays to this viral outgrowth assay, it turns out that the PCR assays give you infected cell frequencies that are about 300 times higher than uh, the viral outgrowth assay and poorly correlated with the viral outgrowth assay. And what this means is that there's a lot of uh, uh, proviruses in these T cells that are not induced to produce replication-competent virus in the viral outgrowth assay. So what's going on? Well, if you do uh, uh, sequencing of these proviruses, it turns out that most of them are defective. And in this graph, each horizontal line is the sequence of a single provirus. And the white areas are deletions. The green are hypermutation introduced by a host enzyme that would kill the virus. An intact provirus would be a solid blue line going all the way across, and you can see they're actually very rare. So it turns out that most of the proviruses that are present in resting T cells are defective. And in this graph, uh, the, the intact proviruses um, uh, that are not defective are shown in red. Only 2% in patients who start treatment during chronic infection, 5% in patients who start treatment during acute infection. So almost all of the proviruses are defective and the standard PCR measures uh, pick up these and don't really give a good picture of this reservoir. So just to put this in perspective, the standard PCR assays uh, give infected cell frequencies that would be illustrated by this yellow sphere. Uh, most of them are defective. The, blue, the, the pink sphere is what you get with this viral outgrowth assay. But what we really want to know is how many proviruses are actually capable of replication, and that's the, uh, the blue sphere. Each time you do this viral outgrowth assay, uh, you can get uh, additional cells to uh, produce virus. So really um, what we want to know is the number of intact proviruses. That would be the blue sphere. It's a much better measure than the current measure, which is this yellow sphere, of the true size of this reservoir. And we don't have an assay for this right now. We urge a fi field, I think, urgently needs this. 
Um, so just um, in closing, I want to uh, uh, come back to this issue of why is this reservoir uh, so stable? I say, I've said we don't think it's due to the drugs uh, not stopping replication completely. Um, rather, uh, recent evidence suggests that, in fact, the stability reflects the ability of these latently infected cells, which I've said are resting T cells, the ability of these cells to proliferate. Um, now, these are two studies that appear in science recently that looked at where the virus is integrated into the human genome. And normally, HIV inserts itself into the human genome all over the place, all over the entire genome. So it's very unlikely that two cells would have the virus inserted in exactly the same place. But these studies both showed that if you look at different cells from the same patient, you often find the virus inserted in exactly the same place. And the only way to exp explain that is that a cell got infected and then it divided after it got infected. And when the cell divides, the viral genome is part of the cellular DNA, so it's, it's, it's replicated uh, very faithfully during cell division. So these studies suggested that the virus uh, uh, in these latently infected cells could actually be maintained by simply proliferation of, uh, of infected T cells. And we recently uh, confirmed this using the viral outgrowth assay to grow out lots of viruses from the same patient and compare them uh, by sequence. And what we found is that despite the fact that these patients have an enormous diversity of different sequences, uh, many of the, the sequences of the viruses that you grow out are, are absolutely identical. Uh, and uh, if we count up the numbers, over half of this reservoir actually uh, represents viruses that are probably uh, came from cells uh, that had divided. So the reservoir is actually maintained by cell division. And this is a, a disturbing concept because the very cells that we're trying to get rid of, it turns out they're actually uh, proliferating in vivo. Now, the hopeful thing, and what, so what drives the proliferation, it could be the cells responding to antigen, it could be cytokines that are involved in normal homeostasis of uh, memory T cells, or as was suggested in the science papers, it could be that the virus is integrating into certain genes randomly, and those are genes involved in cell division, and somehow that uh, insertion event alters the function of that gene in such a way that the cell is driven to proliferate. Now, uh, in closing, the hopeful thing is that the total size of this reservoir doesn't increase over time. As I showed you, it's actually uh, very, very stable. So that um, uh, if, uh, um, if cells are proliferating, there has to be also cells dying to keep this uh, sort of in steady uh, state. And so if we could understand uh, what's causing these cells to die, maybe we could figure out a way to accelerate it. And if we could understand what's causing the cells to proliferate, we could hopefully find a way uh, to stop it. Um, so I'm going to uh, stop there. I want to thank the people involved in, in the work uh, in, in our group. So I've been working on this problem with my wife, Janet, for many years. Um, Yachi Ho in our group did the work on defective proviruses. The work on proliferation has been done by Katie Brunner, uh, Nina Hasmani, Jennifer Kwan, Alex Murray. And the mathematical modeling has been done by two brilliant uh, mathematicians, um, Allison Hill and Daniel Rosenblum. Uh, shown here trying to understand how to uh, use a pipette man. And so I'll stop there. I'll be happy to try and uh, answer any questions. Yeah. Perfect. Fabulous. Um, you know, we were talking at dinner last night about the team of people, uh, like you just saw, of various varieties. And if nothing else, it reinforces to me the value of a liberal arts education 
because when we go through our, of our curricula, you know, we sort of say, ah, why do I have to take this? And I'll be damned if later in life, you know, statistics comes back and other math things and calculus. So it's kind of fun to at least know what they're talking about, even though I have no chance to model what they're doing. Jeff, I'll let you kick it off. Um, CTL, it's still not working right. Sorry, right. I'll, re I'll repeat it. Yeah. So CTL is Uh, so Dr. Lenz is asking uh, about the cytolytic T cell uh, escape variants that are uh, seen in the latent reservoir and whether that's due to uh, the fact that um, escape is necessary for the initial uh, dissemination of the, the infection. Um, these escape variants arise um, uh, over the first several months. So um, I think uh, they, they arise uh, after the initial dissemination in high-level viremia. Um, and in fact, the, the uh, initial CTL response is probably what brings down viremia from that peak of a million copies per mil down to the steady state. Um, but during that period and, and afterwards, uh, uh, there is a st very strong selection so that uh, uh, viruses that uh, um, uh, can be recognized by cytolytic T cells, those the, the, the cells infected with those viruses are lysed, and, and so there's a selection for variants that are not recognized. And that occurs really over the first uh, one to two years of infection um, uh, that you get uh, most of the dominant CTL uh, epitopes, uh, um, uh, you get escape from, from, from cytolytic T cells that recognize these dominant epitopes. Now, there still are cytolytic T cells that recognize other epitopes. They don't exert as strong selective uh, pressure, uh, and uh, perhaps by enhancing uh, those, uh, we will be able to target uh, lately infected cells. So I've got a bunch of questions, and again, you can come to the, we didn't really say this, but you can come to the microphone like Dr. Lennox just did, or you can fill out one of the cards and hand it to some of the folks that are coming by and they'll bring it up. But I've got a fair number of questions. I can keep this going for about a day or two. Um, <laughs> let's start with a recent report um, that came out in Nature of a, way to, a new way to measure the reservoir. So there's something called CD32A. How many of you all heard that, saw that? Okay. Um, I'll, I'll let Bob describe it a little bit more, but in general, it's a uh, antibody that can attach to a certain uh, expression of, on the surface of a T cell that indicates, uh, at least allegedly, that that cell is a latently infected cell. And if that were 100% true, then that would be a, that is a great breakthrough because we can start measuring that small uh, dish uh, in the middle of the sea of yellow that you saw in a slide. So. Um, can you interpret, uh, describe it, I guess, first, and then maybe say what you think it all means? Yeah, so this was a study by uh, Monsef Benkerin uh, from France, um, and he, what they show is that a, a, a cell surface protein called CD32, which is not normally on T cells, it's normally expressed on, uh, on macrophages and, and, and neutrophils, uh, but they used an antibody to this protein to uh, 
uh, sort T cells, and they found that the, T, the rare T cells that expressed this protein uh, were highly enriched in uh, latent HIV. Uh, and this is the first time we've really had a, a marker for these cells. The problem with, with studying latent HIV is because the virus is silent, you really can't tell the difference between an infected cell and an uninfected cell. And I think most people thought there would be no unique cell surface characteristic that would allow us to identify these cells. This study actually claims that CD32, the CD32 protein um, on the T cell is a marker for latent infection. Now, the study really needs to be replicated. Uh, I think most people just find it uh, almost too good to be true. Um, but, uh, you know, if it were true, it would give us a way to, uh, uh, as, as Mike said, to, to count these cells. Not sure it could be used to target these cells because the, the CD32 protein is expressed on all of these other uh, cell types. But uh, hopefully it would allow us to identify other uh, markers that, that would allow us to directly target the latently infected cells instead of doing what we, we do now, which is to turn on the virus uh, in these cells and then try to try to kill the cells. Okay. Um, so we'll hear more about that over the year, but be on the watch for CD32A, small a. Um, okay, so here's a great question about, I'll just paraphrase it. What happens to the reservoir, good or bad, if we treat somebody as soon as possible with acute infection? Well, I think, you know, there's a lot of reasons to treat very early. Um, uh, one of them we already mentioned that uh, cytotoxic T cell escape mutations arise. And so if you treat very early, the reservoir is composed of viruses that don't have these escape mutations. Treating during acute infection uh, results in a smaller uh, reservoir, um, but uh, you have to treat uh, extremely early to really uh, prevent establishment of this reservoir. This has been best uh, studied in the SIV model in which you know precisely the time of exposure. And studies by Dan Rook have shown that if you uh, initiate treatment on day three after exposure or after infection uh, of monkeys with the virus, then actually you prevent the initial uh, burst of viremia. But if you stop treatment at six months, the virus rebounds. So even within the first uh, a couple of days, some of these latently infected cells are generated and, and, and then they, they persist. So I think you know, early treatment sh certainly should be done, but, it, but, it, but it's really not an answer to, to the reservoir problem. Yeah, and so I th it used to be, we're gonna have the panel right before lunch, and it used, I used to have a question, do you treat somebody with acute seroconversion syndrome? And that answer now is pretty straightforward, yes you want to treat as early as possible, and there's more and more data, but one of that hypothetical reasons, if not actual reasons. Here's another one that sets us up for today's panel. It's if somebody saw the question that I'm going to ask later, but it's in essence about um, explaining what an elite controller is. So the question is, how do you explain a patient with positive HIV antibody, for sure, but negative viral load with no therapy and repeated DNA PCR positivity of of intracellular latent virus. Yeah, so um, this, this sounds like the description of these elite controller patients. These are the rare patients who uh, uh, become infected and control viremia without any treatment. Um, these patients have been studied for a long time because everyone thought that, you know, if we could understand what's going on in these patients, we'd be able to uh, 
um, you know, reproduce that in, 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 in most patients, induce this kind of control. Um, most of the data suggests that the, the ability of these patients to control viral replication has to do with their cytotoxic T cell response. Um, but going beyond that, we really haven't made uh, much progress. We don't really understand, I don't think, the key characteristics of that cytotoxic T cell response, and we don't understand how can we sort of reproduce that in the, in the average uh, patient. Right, and that, that sort of leads perfectly into a question that I have, and that is, just cynically, it feels like our original purpose of cure research was to eradicate the virus exactly like we do in hepatitis C. Virus gone, not coming back, possibility of reinfection, but uncommon. Uh, it felt like, though, as we went into this and we found it wasn't quite as easy as we thought, that there's a default in some people's thinking to, well, if we just get people to control the virus without therapy, that's a good thing. And um, so the question is, is that good enough to get to a elite controller status and so you can stop therapy, be exactly like this patient? Well, I think it, it, certainly, it certainly would be a good thing, whether it's good enough. I mean, as we were discussing, the, there are some studies that said, suggest that if you follow elite controllers over time, a certain fraction of them progress. Uh, they develop viremia and another, another fraction shows CD4 cell uh, loss. But uh, the remainder control viremia indefinitely, and I think that would be a, a very good outcome. And as I said, there's, there's a big debate in the field about whether we're more likely to, to be successful in, in, in achieving that, that kind of very good immune control versus completely uh, eliminating this reservoir. I think both of them are, are very hard goals, and I, I personally don't, uh, can't foresee which one's more likely to, 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 to lead to cure. Okay, so this is a question about the Boston patients who got transplanted. It's became clear, obviously, that the immune system, there's escape cells that um, are no longer uh, sort of stopped uh, or gotten rid of, and sort of like leukemia that can come back. Um, that can also escape treatment. So the question, bottom line, is are, is there any difference between classes of antiretroviral therapy, integrase inhibitor, protease inhibitor, et cetera, um, that affect the latent reservoir in any way that you can tell? No, I don't think so. I think um, you know all of the drugs, as I said, fundamentally you can think of it as they prevent new cells from becoming infected. Uh, and so um, I, I don't think the class of, uh, of drugs really matters in terms of the reservoir. The key thing is, you know, stopping ongoing replication. Okay. And then I guess this, uh, oh, we got a couple questions here. Let's mm -hmm. go to the microphone. <clears throat> Carlos Reyes, Montgomery, Alabama. Uh, what happens with the reservoir in these patients that have been infected for a long time and their T cells or T4s are undetectable now. They, they have no T cells in plasma, probably in the, in, in, in the tissue, <clears throat> but not in plasma. And you know, amazingly, or I, I guess expectedly, they have a not that high viral load in, in, in plasma. What happens with that reservoir? Where is the C for just in the tissue? Or is it leaking CD4s into the plasma? So, so, so if you're asking um, what happens in patients who have a very low CD4 count, yes, 
depleted CD4. Yeah. So, so, the, so that's very interesting. You know, you, you would think that if CD4 cells are the major uh, site at which viral replication occurs, uh, uh, and um, uh, the site at which this reservoir resides, um, if, all, if you've progressed to the point where you have no CD4 cells, your CD4 count is, is extremely low, uh, then what's going on? Well, in fact, most of those patients actually have a high level of viremia, and some people think that's due to viral replication in other cell types, such as macrophages, and there's evidence uh, for that. Um, and also, as you suggest, uh, the peripheral CD4 count doesn't really tell you about CD4 cells in a variety of, of, of tissues. So, so my sense is that those patients have some CD4 cells left uh, and that they have a reservoir. And when we've looked at patients who had, whose CD4 count went down close to zero and then uh, went on treatment and had reconstitution, and we measure the frequency of latently infected cells in the CD4 cells that come back, we see just about the same level of latently infected cells as we see in everybody else. This question may not make sense. I'll start off with that. Can you get closer to the microphone? Pardon me? Yeah, there you <laughs> go. Good. There you go. So um, I'm wondering if the best thing to do is to have early, early ART therapy. We have people on PrEP with a regimen that is not going to be a long-term suppressant re regimen. If we, rather than just used a Truvada for PrEP, used a full regimen for PrEP, which would be slightly more expensive to use, and the reason why PrEP sometimes doesn't work is that people are human and they sometimes miss pills, but if we were having, on the days that people remember to take their pills, a really potent regimen rather than just Truvada, wouldn't that lead to a more um, suppressible viremia once if someone does seroconvert. Would that be a cost-effective way to get people under more suppressed care, uh, cure, or more suppressed uh, state after they get? Yeah. And why are we continuing to use just this? So that's an interesting in in question, and maybe Mike can help me with this. But, yeah. you know, uh, when you have an exposure to HIV, the number of infection events that you have to prevent is actually very low. And so, um, you know, just a, a single drug or, or a two-drug regimen actually is fine for stopping those infection events. You probably don't need, uh, you know, a third drug. What you need is to have compliance uh, or have, you know, the two drugs on board when you have exposure to the virus. So it's different than you know, when you have a full-blown infection where you have many, many infection events that you have to prevent. Uh, during the, uh, during transmission, the number of infection events is actually very small. So it's really, I think it's more a question of assuring uh, that you have the drugs, you have some drug there when the exposure occurs. I, I agree. I, I see the point of your question, though. So for the vast majority of people, and Dimitri Daskalaskis is here from New York City, and he's going to talk about PrEP and maybe he'll address this as well, but when you're just trying to prevent that first infection, you don't need a really high barrier, right? You're saying once that infection's taken root, wouldn't it be great to have more powerful regimen on board right then? Right. Yeah. yeah. And so that would be the ultimate in early, early acute infection treatment, and you're right, that would probably restrict the reservoir. I think that's true. The question is the cost effectiveness, as you mentioned, and, and I, I don't know that 
I, I can't imagine that it's going to be cost effective with the cost of the medicines today. But it's a good thought. It's a good thought. Um, we're, we're, yeah, we're going to have to wrap up. Uh, Bob, thank you so much for being here. Thanks. We'll see you back. Thanks. Yeah, thanks. <laughs>